Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, Violet Ciotti, or in the Italian proper way, Ciotti. All right. Now, we used to work together in Abu Dhabi uh, as professors. You are art history, correct? Correct. Okay. And you're also an art collector. So, of course, one of my first things I always want to know about people is sort of how you got to being what you are. So was it something in your childhood, your parents, your family? How did you even get to being art historian? And then, of course, how mm -hmm. did you start collecting as well? So I think, Matt, way back when I was probably five or six, there was a distinctive art trip we took with our school. And we went to Toronto to the Royal Ontario Museum. And there was an art exhibition. I believe it was Mummies in the Age of the Pyramids. That didn't strike me at all. But what did strike me was the collections, the incredible collections there at the museum. Pottery, painting, textile, it had everything and it just blew me away. So that le left a lasting impression in my mind. So I think I knew at a quite a young age that I was definitely going to go into art. I didn't know what type of art, maybe art history. I knew much later afterwards studying art history that it was a, definitely a field for me. Now, where did you grow up though? So I grew up in Brantford, Ontario. It's a little town in Ontario, Canada. I went on to do undergraduate degree in art history at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, I did my thesis on angels in Dutch 17th century art. And then I went on to do my master's degree in Manchester, England. And I did it on corporate sponsorship in the museum field, something I don't like now. But at the time, it was, you know, get that thesis done and under my belt. So. So that was my background. But growing up in Brantford, I was really lucky. I worked as a page in the library for five years. And from there, I knew I liked archives. I, I loved collecting, whether it was books, archives. It was something that was always in me. And I got to work at the Glenhurst Art Gallery of Brant each summer as an art camp supervisor. And then when I studied at McMaster University in Hamilton, I worked in archives, putting the slides back something that you would never see as a student today, meticulously putting each slide back in either for the slide carousel tray for the professor or putting it back into the archives. So I did that too on the side. That's my pretty much background in art and art history. But at that time, I was always in the art world, watching the studio people. I made friends with a lot of the studio people. And I think that was the first time I ever purchased a work of art. It was uh, some mundane goats watercolor way back in probably 1995 or 97. But I just remember how wonderful that artist felt. It was like the culmination of a senior's studio. She was so excited that someone had purchased her work. And that really left a lasting impression with me. Okay, so now you have a, a collection that you've been sort of building since it sounds like 1995. So that goes, what, 25 years. Could you give me an estimate on, so is it, uh, how big is it these days? I've never really counted. Hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's big. I, I wouldn't even know if I was a proper collector. I'm not sure how okay. how large it is. There's works on paper. There's no work. There's no works on sculpture. There's no large, huge works. I mean, I have a, a a system that I kind of go by if it's going to fit in the house. I mean, I always feel like there's a wall that could have a work of art. Wait, I love a system. Go ahead, tell me your system. <laughs> Well, I have three kids, 
So a sculpture, you know, that's not going to work well with a soccer ball in the house. So if I think it's going to be quite fragile and I can't store it properly, it's probably not going to work for me until I'm older. Understandable. I have cats and we had the same problem with sculptures and the cats. Okay. We have two cats too. (laughs) Yeah. My cats, I used to have this beautiful piece from a guy from the Corcoran and my cat just knocked it over and it shattered everywhere. So that's when I decided not to collect three-dimensional works at all. Unless it can be like put in a, in a storage space, like on a shelf or some way that can be protected from children or animals. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk more about art history or do you want to talk more about collecting? I think the two kind of, they're kind of fabricated together, aren't they? When you're collecting. I mean, I think because I have that art history background, when I look at a work, I sometimes see things that perhaps someone else doesn't see. I once kind of, I want to say, inherited this beautiful work by Hermine David when we got married from a dear friend in England, and it was in her family for quite some time. It's a dry point etching from 1920. And she had no interest in it whatsoever. But I had known that Hermine David was actually the granddaughter of Jacques-Louis David, who kind of was brushed aside because she had married Jules Pachin. And I found her entire history quite interesting because she was in that circle in Montparnasse in Paris, frequenting studios and friends with Modigliani and Jules Pachin. And then suddenly she's nowhere to be found. They got divorced and she moved back to Paris. And that's when this dry point etching seems to have occurred. So I, I love this work. So when I inherited, I kind of say inherited with works that are gifts, I quickly had it reframed, new glass put on it. I'm a snob when it comes to how the work is going to be hung with a glass, with the framing. The framing is so important to me. It's a dry point etching, so it had the wrong glass on it. So now it has glare-proof glass on it. It has proper matting, and and I absolutely love it. All right, so this makes me start to wonder. So like, when you are choosing to purchase a work, what would be a definition? What what would be some criteria? It sounds like there's a bit of a desire for a story or a relationship. So like, what are mm-hmm. some criteria for you that say this piece is worth buying, this one's not for you? I, l- I like to look at the background of the artist. Are they doing something new? Are they trying to create a different environment? Is there a political statement that they're trying to discuss? I Look first at, uh, are we in love with the work? I mean, does the work speak to us? You can be in front of many works of art and they don't do anything. But for me, works of art, they definitely move me. And I think that's why I'm in the field that I'm in. I remember looking at a Mark Rothko, one of the first times in one of our art history trips, going to the Albright Knox, crossing the border. It's one of the oldest art galleries in North America. And I remember standing in front of a Mark Rothko and I was moved. I was incredibly moved, but I did not know much about Mark Rothko. So does the move, does the work move you ultimately? Is there a significant story behind the work or um, series of works? The background of the artist is, was there trials, tribulations of his background growing up? I have a soft spot for artists who have been through things. Yeah. I guess there's a series of things. Well, so what I'm hearing is, is that you want to have some connection or some story behind the work. So one thing I wonder about as a practicing artist myself, like is, 
is it just the work that moves you or is it the story behind like the the text that we write you know so is it titles is it artist statements do any of those things even influence you in any way whatsoever sometimes i mean i, I have works that are untitled so i mean you have to find meaning within the work itself but i find it often interesting when a collector or a buyer is establishing a relationship with the artist. I find this so important and so pitiful, pivotal. And I really think this has come across far more interesting now with COVID and, and being in our homes, neglected to almost to go online. I find myself contacting artists, which I never did before. I mean, often you're at an art fair and if the artist is there, you're more inclined to ask them questions about the artwork, correct? I mean, had I not been at a particular art fair, I probably would not have thought of looking into the works by Jemima Patterson, a British artist who paints on glass. So she buys canvases from auction houses or estates, and then she turns it over and she paints on the glass and her whole stories about duality she was actually born born as a conjoined twin with her sister and then uh by the year so both of them were conjoined twins by the year so i i found her story fascinating so because she was actually there at the art pavilion i could ask her these questions now would i have walked right past the work had she not been there perhaps i wouldn't even have known to to flip the work over to think that the artist painted on one side and the other side is a vintage work from the 1920s, 1900s. So you're actually buying two works of art. So I think the connection to the artist is key. For me, it is anyways. It's key to have that connection. Now, I know auction houses or galleries would hate someone like me, but I am not the first to be like this. I don't know if you know the story about the Vogels, Herb and Dorothy Vogel in the U.S. I think it was in the 1940s, 1950s. No, they were married in the 50s. They occupied a 400-square-foot apartment, and they collected and amassed probably one of the most impressive collections in the U.S., and all on a salary. I think they used his salary. He worked at the post office, and she worked at the library. I mean, like myself, you know, it's I'm, I would rather sell a handbag. What's important to you? I'm not one of those types of collectors that I have all this extra money sitting on the side. I'd rather sell a handbag or do without many, do without many things and to have that work of art. That's me. And that was the Vogels. I find them so interesting how they were able to amass this incredible collection. They were made friends with Roy Lichtenstein and Andy Goldsworthy. And there was a story at one point that Christo and Jean-Claude, you know, they would receive a knock at the door and it was them, the vocals coming. And uh, Jean-Claude said, oh, we can pay our rent now. So I love stories like that. I mean, because they were buying directly from the artist. And I love that. So you don't buy through galleries? I have in the past. I mean, <laughs> I won't lie. A gallery got in touch with me because they knew I was looking for a Christo. And this one I particularly liked, which was a wrapped Vespa. Uh, it was a gallery in London. And uh, yeah, I had to deal with them. But you do know that you're paying the gallery a considerable percentage. We're talking 10, 15. I worked for Sotheby's when I was working at the Royal Ontario Museum. When I graduated, I worked at the Royal Ontario Museum, was their education curator for one of the galleries upstairs. And on the weekends, 
I worked at Sotheby's. So I was that person that wrote the letters that, you know, this is actually important work or this is not. I was just basically a secretary writing these letters. And I saw how much Sotheby's would take on the side. We're talking 15, 20%, but of course, you know, they are working to find the clients, the buyers. It's a tough name. Like sometimes it's difficult to like, know, like when you know that people are taking percentages, it's kind of hard to pay it. And from the artist side, it's kind of hard to, you know, let them take it, let's say kind of thing. But it's part of the system that exists. I mean, is it, do you think that that system could be revised in some way to make it less involved with galleries or, or do you think that they're a necessary element in the, so the whole. They're, they're absolutely, yeah, they're absolutely necessary for those higher end artists. I mean, a, a Banksy can't just, I mean, when Banksy's works do go up, for example, they need those auction houses. But I really think since technology it's come such a long way since you and I were young I mean I can go online now I have an Instagram site too which I'm very new to really I have it just to inspire up and coming emerging artists so you know I hashtag emerging artists I get excited when I find an artist and I think that's an incredible platform I I, we didn't see that 10-15 years ago Instagram and they can now put their artworks on uh, this quick module platform. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. What do you define as emerging artist? Hmm, that's interesting. I would say uh, an emerging artist is someone you might find on Saatchi, Saatchi online. I I sometimes look on Saatchi. So so they've had a few, maybe one or two or three exhibitions. I found a few artists like that. Super Future Kid is one who's based, who was born in Berlin, now lives in London. I think she just had a show in Tokyo. So emerging, I would define as an artist who is just cutting the public. They're just coming out, a few shows under their belt, but they have this confidence. There's something about them. And and I don't mean artists that are constantly recycling old works. I'm, I'm looking to see what are they putting out? What are they bringing to the forefront, if that makes sense? It does. You mentioned Instagram and finding new artists. So, so the thing that's interesting is so since COVID has started and since lockdowns have started and all this kind of stuff, do you see that your way of finding new artists has changed dramatically or at all? At all? Well, I'm at home now more than ever before. I can't travel. I miss that. I miss going to the exhibitions. It was a wonderful Raphael exhibition too. So it completely has changed how we are looking at art. Uh, but then again, it's wonderful. Friday nights, the Frick Collection, Curators and Cocktails, every Friday night, we can learn more about the Frick Collection. I don't know if that probably doesn't answer your question whatsoever, but I think being at home has introduced me to new, new artists that I would never have considered in the past. I just acquired a work. It's just a print, but a beautiful Zeekly some people would pronounce it Gisli, but it's Zikli, which is probably the best way an art print can be. I pronounce it Gikli, but okay. Yeah, that's wrong. No, okay. it's Zikli. And it's a work of a rose that grew, bracket, out of concrete. But this artist, Tommy Mitchell, who was born in Mississippi, um, now he's, he's got a beautiful studio overlooking Baltimore. He does his works entirely out of pen. 
And if you see his works, they will just blow your mind, all with a big pen. And, and they're not small, they're large. Would I have known of this artist prior? Probably not. No. I will put a link to all these people you're mentioning in the show notes, by the way. Okay. Uh, another artist, actually, that I found recently, because I'm sitting at home drinking my cappuccinos, we actually bought a nice cappuccino machine maker now, finally, is B.D. White's works. I can't recall it lightly at all. Hung it in my son's room. It's beautiful. It's just this floating. I, I love anything to do with space and astronauts. And uh, another artist that I would not have known. But then I looked at his story and his background. Uh, his history is amazing. Another great artist. So I would not have known of him had I not been stuck at home. Okay. So what, what, but part of that is, is like, you're still continuing to collect, even though we're in quarantine. So like, so it basically, it hasn't stopped your collecting. No, I mean, they're probably, I, the first thing I look at is how can the work be shipped? How can I acquire the work? How, you know, is there customs and is there going to be customs and duty and anything like that? I mean, it's much easier to collect when you're in the actual continent to some extent. Absolutely. Now you mentioned works on paper and and addition to prints. Like, so what do, what do you desire when you're? Are you looking for original works? Do you do paintings, prints? Like, what's your? I think I have a I have a mix. I mean, I I still remember the first time we were. I was awestruck by an artist. We're going way back now, probably two thousand and seven, uh, and I subscribed to Art News Magazine, and there was this wonderful work. And it was actually a board. Uh, no, I, I won't say it was wood. So it, and it's and it's quite large. I would say it's uh, 48 inches by 48 inches. It took quite a team to actually hang it because it's quite so heavy. It's carved wood. And the artist is Nicholas Wilton. So the work that I had seen in Art News Magazine, when I contacted the gallery, and this is before, you know, we have Instagram and everything else. To, so can you believe it? Instagram's quite new. So 2007, I have this beautiful documentation. Sometimes I look back at everything because now I've started organizing letters. So I have this beautiful background of exchange of letters between the gallery, Fleetwood Selby Gallery, I believe it's called, uh, or Selby Fleetwood Gallery. It's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And they said, Violet, we don't have that specific work you saw. I believe it was called Crimson Night. It was purchased. The whole show actually be sold out which is probably every artist's dream, right? To sell out every single work in the show. So I think it made me want one of his works even more. And then she showed me a few more and I was struck with this work titled Mosaic. And it had these really incredible organic shapes that seemed to float. There's two birds. There's just something about it. I mean, every time I look at it still now, I find something new in it. It's, it's beautiful and it hangs above our fireplace. So, and that work was just because I was looking through Art News Magazine. Um, but it, it's heavy because again, it's carved wood painted. It's 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 quite heavy. It's a panel painting. As I'm listening to you, because I've had this conversation with some other people about the idea of patrons. So, like, do you collect? Okay, in the old days, there was sort of this idea that a patron would find an artist or a group of artists, and they would continually buy from them and support them throughout their career, like, you know, buying every year or every two years, whatever, to continually, you know, be some support, be their patron. 
do you do it? Do you purchase work like that? Because I feel like it's moving away from that because of the sheer volume of artists that exist these days. Mm-hmm. That that a lot of collectors are just buying one piece by an artist uh, or maybe two pieces, but not continued patronage. So, do you do continuing patronage, or are you more of a you know best favorite piece by an artist? That's a good question. I have I have not yet repurchased a piece from a single artist. I do have my eye on artists that I would recollect into my collection again, like Jemima Patterson, Julianne Zinzogan, did this beautiful work series, Land Ho. Um, so there are a few artists that I would buy from again, but I think in different moments of my life, I, I seem to collect differently. I'm thinking I'm in Western New York. I should be looking at artists that are from here or were from here. I mean, Cindy Sherman grew up from here. But there's A.J. Fries, who's still here. I definitely would love a work from him. So I think because it is because of the sheer volume of artists that are out there, but I would never not consider buying from an artist that I've collected from in the past. Okay. <laughs> what what about the idea of patronage cuz like you know as as again as from I mean, my that, perspective that, yeah patronage is huge i mean that was something that was established during the italian renaissance i mean without a patron you 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 couldn't even buy your paintbrushes and paint for your next canvas so that that was huge to i mean that is so important for an artist is it how i like to buy works Probably not, but I think patronage as for an artist, that is very important. I mean, to have, I mean, that's what the Vogels did when they were collecting. They would buy a few works from each of the artists and it meant a lot to the artists too. They, you know, they found recognition in what they were doing. And that is so important in these emerging artists and these new artists that are emerging in the field today. Okay. Back to that point of emerging artists and finding new artists, all this kind of stuff, like how do you find new artists? I mean, because the whole world is your oyster. I mean, literally between social media and then just the internet in general, you can literally find artists anywhere in the world. So like what, how do you even, I guess let's flip it the opposite way. How, what can an artist do to make themselves desirable or attractive to a collector like yourself? Mm -hmm. I love to see an artist's studio. I often find the sketches, the drawings, the plannings are probably sometimes far more important than their final product. For me anyways, I mean, it's interesting. Da Vinci had maybe a dozen works that we know of today, 10, 12, the most. What we do have is probably 1,500 journals and books of his drawings and his designs. Some of them are in the Windsor Castle. So I I think the drawings, the design, it really shows you the breathing and the heartbeat behind the artist. I love that. Uh, So I would love to see more of the studio. How is the artist creating? I'm one of those people that when an artist, and and I'm just discovering this, I'm not really good with technology, they suddenly go live and they're in their studio and they're painting and they're creating. I love that. That's just, that's wow to me. That's just that blows me away when I can actually see them instead of just the final product, because you, you really get to see the heartbeat of the artist. They're in their element. 
that the idea of doing that as a practicing artist i'm just like why would anybody want to watch me in my studio that seems like the really? most boring oh. stupid thing <laughs> ever no that's i mean that's the culmination of the final product how did they get to that final product so i like to see the very beginnings maybe it's because I, i'm not an artist i mean i'm people that do not create the whole idea of trying or putting their hand to canvas or hand to paper, just just starting this, you know, like putting your hand to clay and forming that beautiful sculpture. It's it's daunting, really. Okay, okay, wait. I want to get a little more specific with this idea, though. Okay, you're talking about like Instagram or Facebook lives kind of things. Like mm -hmm. I, I would not probably ever do something like that because even this podcast i edit this like uh, i'm not going to go live because i will say something stupid or do something stupid <laughs> and horribly embarrass myself and I'm, I'm just not willing to do that so the the idea of like do you do you appreciate more the sort of the the literal sort of like unknown kind of like live like i have no idea what's about to happen and it might mm -hmm. be magical or it might be that not. surprise element or those kinds of like online things where you just see the process of their creation. And of course it sort of starts from a blank canvas, let's say to a finished painting or a, or a, a slab of clay to a finished beautiful pottery thing. Like, so is it, is it more the unknowns or the beautiful sort of created and edited, you know, beginning, middle and ends? I don't mind the edited part if that's what the artist feels more comfortable, but only showing finished products that doesn't really do it for me. I like to see either they go live or they maybe even edited or they've shown some part of their studio or how they work. And what do they do on their off time? I mean, they're not creating work 24 seven, are they? Um, well, it, you know. It's an interesting change. Cause I mean, if you go back 30 years, uh, the, the, the studios of an artist, the, the lifestyle of an artist, all this kind of, it was totally not discussed. It was not addressed. Nobody talked about it. And now it, it, there's been this dramatic shift in the past 30 years, let's say, to very much so sort of the life, lifestyle, influences, process, these mm -hmm. kinds of things being much more interesting now than they ever have been. And, and of course, that a lot of that is the web and social media that has encouraged this. Absolutely. And I think really performance art, when performance art came into play, around the world, but mainly in the US, that that changed everything for us. I mean, how do you even encapsulate performance art? Well, see, that's funny, because when I think of performance art, I, I'm not a huge fan of performance art as a general, but but my background on it is that I remember the documentation of mm -hmm. the performance art. So I always remember these iconic images that are now known that represent this thing that had been performed. As a photographer, that sort of makes sense that that would be the way I would remember these things though. Right. And often performance artists are doing art on the side, whether it's print work, sculpture. Uh, there's a wonderful artist, a performance artist based in London, Ricardo, uh, Ricardo Matlacas. He, he just... He's almost like another Banksy, but you can see him. And it's not just graffiti art. He's doing a little bit of everything. And he's just got this incredible power of energy that surrounds him. You, you want to know what he's going to do next. You want to be around him. So performance artists, they're not just doing performance art. 
Well, to a, to a certain extent, you could even say like that the you know Instagram and social media and stuff is a form of performance art in its own right. Right. Actually, I have an interesting topic. This is something that people come to me with when they ask me. You, you know, uh, I'm I'm looking for art, and I always find this interesting. So you're looking for art, and what always boggles me is: Are you looking for art to fill a wall? Or are you looking because you might like a particular style and you want to try to chase that? I, I will never understand someone who's trying to fill a wall. I'll always have a space. I mean, I always have, you know, my husband will say, oh, oh my goodness, where is that one going next? So there's always going to be space for it. But when someone asks me, I need to fill this space above the sofa, I, I don't even know where to start. My head hurts. Start with the curtains and their sofa design. I can't do it. I mean, I will change wall color for the art to fit that room. I mean, after we got the Nicholas Wilton, I had someone come in to see what would work in terms of color. The whole house was painted white. So I really think in purchasing art, I, I will never understand. You might as well go buy art at Target. And sadly, many people do. So. Yeah. That deserves another podcast. <laughs> I mean, more power, yeah, more power to them. But if they paid the artists a good wage for that art, I would feel better about it. Sadly, I know that a lot of those corporations don't pay artists very well. So, you know, this is something. Th this is interesting because I think with collecting, people often think, "Oh, but I don't have ten thousand dollars. Well, I don't have five thousand. I don't have two thousand dollars. I can't do it." Some of the drawings and prints that I've started with in my collection, they're $100, $500, under 1000 It doesn't need to cost $10,000. Yeah, you know, some of them do. My family, my parents began collecting back in 1964. And what they did when they got married was they said for every year, every anniversary, they will buy each other a piece of art that they basically both love fall that. in love with kind mm -hmm. of thing. And so, so literally every year they bought a piece of art that they both were somehow moved by. And so now 60 years later, they have a nice little collection going. That's beautiful. That's nice. So, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be big. I mean, some, I've even seen some of the sales receipts, like they paid like $6, of course, mm -hmm. 1964 money, but like $6 or one of them was a big splurge. I think it was like $20, you know, right. and of course, you know, and while they love these things and of course now I love these things and I look forward to sort of inheriting these things, but you know, their value has, you know, gone up, maybe not a ton, but enough that it's, you know, they also are financially worth the investment as well. Right. Which raises another question. Are you collecting because you think it's going to increase in value? That's another thing I will never understand um, when someone asks me, are you buying that because maybe in 10, 15 years or in 50 years time? That's not how I collect. Not at all. I, I, I see it as I'm just a caretaker for whoever inherits it next. I don't think of value or if the price will increase whatsoever. So if you're out there buying specifically because you think the work is going to increase your heart is not in the work and at the same time the artist has sold their work in the idea that i think it's twofold for an artist when they're selling a work they need to make money but they're they're selling a piece of themselves when they are creating a work of art they are letting their baby go out into the world and they're not going to see that work again unless it's in an exhibition i mean that must be hard for an artist you have to empathize with them at the same time but to think that to only 
purchase a work of art because you think it will increase in value. That is not the way to collect, in my mind. This entire talk is just about you, so it's perfectly fine. <laughs> All right, you mentioned something about editions before, and I, I'm I've, I come from a works on paper background, so I'm always fascinated from the other side. So, like you know, I'm an artist and 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 I create these things, but from the buyer's perspective, what is your uh, sort of technique or your choices? Like, what do you look at when you're looking at, let's say, an edition? So like, do you like larger editions? You know, do they need to be archival processes, like short run editions, signed, numbered? Like what are some of the criteria that make it more desirable for you? Right. So I check and research everything. Provenance records. So the paper trail that is behind the work. If it's a new art, if it's a new emerging artist, of course, they're not going to have the provenance and the paperwork behind it. But the number is also important to me. I try not to buy editions of more than 200. So there is only a block of the 200, but again, that's just me. And I try to keep it within the first set. Again, how it's printed is so important too. The wait, 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 one step back. When, okay, so let's say there's an edition of 200 and you say the first set. So you're talking like number one through 50 kind of thing or number 150 to 200? Like, because correct, like okay. the, the first, the first section. I, I just find so if the artist has put extra details on it, I, I feel like most oftentimes the artist has done more work and I could be wrong, but more work with the first set. Well, it also depends on the technique because like an, uh, an etching, number 200 is going to have been reworked so many times it might not even look similar to number one. Correct. Yeah. Okay. If, like the Cristo, the Vespa, it was of 200. So, you know, I peaked. My interest in it peaked more. And, you know, and he, I mean, well, you worked with me as a lecturer, uh, as a professor. We got to work with Cristo. I mean, I have autographs. I have photos with him. Unfortunately, he's now passed away. So people ask me, so is this works more now? I'm not sure. But his hand is there in the first few sets. You, you see it more. You see the, the crayon, the pencil, the chalk, the drawing, the construction paper that he uses in the collage on top of it. Okay. But you then were starting to talk about mediums. So like when it comes to an edition, the medium is important for you. Correct. Tommy Mitchell, the rose that grew I believe the work that I have, he hasn't done any other prints. All of his works are original. They're all pen. So this is the first time with that series, The Rose That Grew, that he decided to do a print. So as soon as it went up, I was on to, to snag that. <laughs> well, well, the the question then is, is like this, uh, uh, I mispronounce it. So the, the gicle, gicle, what's the pronouncement? Gicle. Gicle. But it's spelled with, you know, with a G. I do know, yes. It, it's French. It's it, G-I-C-L-E-E. -E. It, it's French to spray. And it's actually the best. It's far superior form of printing. It comes right from an inkjet. So it's far more superior than any other type of printing. So I, I look for things like this. I look for, you know, how is it reproduced? Well, okay. So like, let's go back. You talked about the right glass and the right matting and all this kind of stuff. So like, and also the right, and this point sort of even the right paper and the right medium, how important as a collector is it for you to have archival materials? 
I, I mean, I think when you're hanging a work, it's important. I mean, is it going to be exposed to sunlight? It should never be exposed to sunlight. Right. That's, that's Absolutely. So like the work by Jemima Patterson, which is on glass, it's in a room that's on off to the side. So the window does not hit it directly. So I think that comes from me being in a museum background, having studied museums. I mean, I mean, it's so important to me, but it's also how I take care of my books. And I think that comes from working five years as a page when I was in high school, just how, how to take care of binding books in general. You bind your own books? We used to bind them in the library when we first got them. It was called binding and burnishing. And so we would take special adhesive and plastic tape and bind the, the sides. That was great. I love that. Oh, no, I meant you. Like, you do, do you do it? Oh, no, not now. Right. But I, I do take care of my books. Well, this brings up an interesting thing, which is oftentimes I find that people that collect art often collect other things. So, so it sounds like you collect books, you collect love art. books. That's probably the only other thing. Books. That's your, those are your two yeah. fetishes. I feel like I could never have enough books. It's funny. I felt like that for many, many years until I started moving a lot. And then I was like, hmm, okay, maybe a few too many books to continually True. move with all the time. But uh, yeah, in my home, I love having books. It's my wife, she criticizes me for having too many books because like, I haven't read most of them. Of course, I've looked at them because they're mostly coffee table books, and, I, and I've, but I haven't read them all. And she's constantly like, why do you own it if you haven't read it? And I'm like, because I looked through it. It's a picture book. Absolutely. They become part of you. Yeah. I mean, I define a lot of like the time periods in my life by like the books I had on my bookshelves at that time. Absolutely. The books that you probably had during university, for example. I still have many of them, but not mm -hmm. all of them. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's interesting the stuff you keep. Like, you know, right. what do you, you know, because like you and I both have gone through this where we sort of moved to another country and then moved mm -hmm. out of another country. And like it, it, when you start doing that, you're like, okay, there are certain things that I don't need anymore and that I can get rid of and I'm okay with that. So whether it's books or art or furniture or whatever it is when you do big moves and stuff like this. And so it's always interesting what you choose to keep. True. Very as true. much as much as it is what you choose to get rid of. <laughs> true. I've downsized my books a lot, but I still have a pretty decent collection. All right. Presentation. You brought up presentation early on. I'm a horrible snob when it comes to presentation. I am totally on your side. But what what is it that you define as like a quality presentation? So how about this? No, wait. The, the real question I'm asking is this. When you buy a work of art, do you want it to already be presented by the artist? So like, should they present, put a frame on it and do all that kind of stuff? Or do you want to buy an art and put your own framing on it? Not necessarily. I mean, sometimes when you're going through the art fairs, they're already in a good presentational manner. I mean, it takes a lot of the guesswork art out for you, which is fine. So I, I think really, too, it depends on how the work is shipped to you. I mean, everyone's going through that right now as we're at home. Doug Schulte did this wonderful, it's a, a collage on wood with resin coat, and I just received it few weeks ago and I, I he was meticulous in how he bubble wrapped it and packaged it up for me I couldn't have seen a better presentation it was within a box within within a box within bubble wrap and 
acid-free paper. He had his provenance paperwork with it. He had the bill of sale with it. He had his card with it. And then he even included a little card thanking me for believing in him. But I think how a work arrives to you is really important. Tracking numbers, all of that. But in terms of how to hang, I mean, that work was, it was perfect. It was ready to hang. It was all wired up at the back, ready to hang. But does that influence whether you purchase it? So like- it makes- Never, never. I could, it could be a scrap of paper and I will take floating frame. I love floating works lately. So it can be a scrap of paper and I will buy a floating frame for it myself because sometimes buyers have a different way how they want it. Well, sometimes, I mean, I've run into the situation where buyers are like, well, but I don't know how to frame it, or I don't know what it would look good in. What would you, and they ask the artist, like, well, what do you think, you know, and it's a really tough balance. So it's like, as an artist, I don't want to necessarily spend the money on a frame that I then ship to a collector and the collector's like, oh, it doesn't match my thing. And they throw it away. And then exactly. better. And mm-hmm. on the and same let's, side. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and let's also, be honest, because framing is incredibly expensive. Sometimes the frames I find are more than some of the works like framing. Framing is very expensive. So, so it's, if the, if the patron wants to ask you ideas to frame, that's, that's great. They might not know how to frame it. Your works come framed. Some of them, they, they had frames with them. Those unfortunately were really shitty frames that you got to the, the ones that you got. (laughs) And I apologize. I still, I still like that. I still, it's, it's holding up. But I mean, you know, over time, you'll probably change the frame if it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. Mine. Yeah. Please change the frame on that. That's a piece of shit frame. Like that, that was, <laughs> I, I would, if I had known and I had more time, cause when you bought it, it was sort of a tight time schedule. You know what? The work actually it. scares the kids. So it's actually in the bathroom, but I love it there. I love, I have heard more stories about my artwork being in people's bathrooms than anything else. <laughs> like, I'm like, we're going to find a proper room for it. But for now, because it scares the kids, it's there. I love it. But. For the listener, she's, she purchased a piece of my artwork before she left, uh, teach, before she left where we met teaching in Abu Dhabi. And uh, the, it's a, it it's a bit of Jane. Jane. It's a bit of a scary image. It can be a bit of a scary image if you interpret it that way, for sure. It's just a sort of a ghostly like figure shaped kind of thing. So I can totally see where somebody would see it as a specter mm-hmm. or something like that. That's fine. I take no offense, they but I do don't have love the, uh, fondness yet. They, they don't have the maturity level yet to appreciate, appreciate fine art. I, I think it's that. Yeah. You c- I'm not going to say anything negative about your children. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> But I love that my work's in bathrooms. Oddly enough, like I've talked about this on the podcast before, like because like in all reality, the bathroom is one room where everybody has to use it. So like you put a piece Absolutely. of art. Absolutely, everyone like, sees it, and actually, people everybody. have asked me about it. But the way it's hung, the the image self reflects into the mirror, and everyone's like, "I feel like she's watching me." I, I go in, and I can see her on the mirror, her eyes, and then I exit, and there she is again. Okay. Yeah. That's a bit awkward for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. But it's, it's there for now. Yeah. I wanted to speak to you about relationship with artists and patrons, because I have this wonderful relationship with an artist friend who now has this company in Cambridge, England, and it's designing mannequins. So it's, it's Manichino. His name is Arish Kanema and Kelly. So they have this wonderful, they went to school at the Royal, Royal College School of Art in London. 
Royal College of Art. And so their mannequins are just taking the world by storm. So they have Ted Baker and Patagonia and all these fashion houses. Dior has approached them, I believe, as well. To use the simple method, and I find their works like works of art, these they come flat packed and then you construct them really simply and they're lightweight and they're, they're just amazing works. So we met, I think it was way back in Manchester, England too. And he actually studied as an engineer, but then went into art and design. And I find his whole background interesting. So I have a little, little baby mannequin, mannequino that I have on display, like a sculpture. Well, I mean, that goes back to the point of relationships is really oftentimes what seems to drive a lot of collectors. Like a lot of, because the reason why I think of this is because, you know, back in my youth, I mean, I'm 47 years old now. So like in my youth, we were taught sort of like artists are in the studio. The artists then give their work to the galleries, the galleries then deal with the collectors. And so like, it's a very separated series of things, but it's it feels like of course it's changing and it's growing and it's evolving mm -hmm. and it's now a lot about the the relationship between the artists themselves and the collectors and the, the i mean yeah sure the gallery can be like a middleman or whatever but but the collectors seem to have want they want more engagement for, with the artists Absolutely. themselves it's 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 very true henry clay frick the frick collection in new york the house is there. It's a wonderful personal collection that you can go in. I think it's closed right now to the public. But Henry Clay Frick, when he was building his collection, he invested in works by Monet when nobody would touch Monet. They had a beautiful relationship together. It's really important, the relationship between a patron, someone who believes in the artist. I want to get like little finite on what you're saying there. Believes in the artist. When like, what are some of the characteristics that make it so you choose like? Because I'm thinking like, let's say there are two artists and one of them, they're both really amazing in whatever way to your your aesthetics. Let's say so. Then what's the the thing that pushes one as the the one that you'll support more than the other? The one that you'll believe in more than the other? The artist that is creating they're keeping busy they're not constantly showing works from their past or prior exhibitions they're highlighting exhibitions that they've done 10 years ago what are they doing now what have they done in their time what have they done during this time when we're more inclined to be at home so what are they doing for themselves to kind of push themselves out there and sometimes they just need that little push of our, our guidance i i referenced sachi a few times but it's a wonderful tool for emerging artists. And so many artists that I've been in touch with, they've never heard of Saatchi, Saatchi Online. Oh, I'm I'm on Saatchi. They haven't sold a damn thing through them, oh. but I'm on there. <laughs> right. I mean, it, I feel like Saatchi is a great idea. Like the mm -hmm. concept behind it, when it first came out, it was super idealistic, really, really great, very powerful tool, powerful name, even that's putting the Saatchi name mm -hmm. behind it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, at this point, I feel like it's gotten a bit watered down and it, it's it, not, it, it doesn't have that same powerful name behind it and prestige that it had when it first got created. Um, so like great idea, great intention, but I think that over time it's gotten watered down a little too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have, other sites now, Artnet. There's there's so many other sites now where someone could look for works of art. I I don't trust eBay. When someone tells me eBay, no, I just 
I don't trust eBay. That's not how I find art. Wait, contemporary art or historical art? Both. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust them for provenance records through eBay. Hmm. I'm sure they're, I mean, I feel like you'd have to hire someone to make sure that it's actually a truly work of art. Oh yeah. But there's so many other methods now. I mean, the fact really Instagram has really media and technology of these platforms has really changed the course for artists. They can upload their images online without even having an exhibition anymore. I mean, this was unheard of when we were young growing up. They can basically have an online exhibition right from their comforts of their own home. Yeah, I'm not sure if I like that or like it, whether I admire and respect it or am saddened by it. But yes, it's true. Right. Because there's a certain character, like in some ways, the whole scenario of the direct to consumer nature of social media and stuff like this, I think it's amazing and great and fabulous. But on other hands, I often feel like there needs to be some, well, it doesn't need to be, but there should be some arbiter of good taste. And I know that sounds like a horrible term, but like that, that sort of helps to edit down the noise. Cause like at this exact moment, like even me, I feel like there's just too large a volume of people sort of using the term artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish there was some differentiation. Like I'm, I'm horrible about this. I, I wish there was like, I wish there was fine art as one sort of tier or level and then like art as another tier and then craft maybe as another tier. Mm-hmm. Like, and I wish people use those sort of uh, more appropriately. I feel like a lot of craftsmen use the term art. I feel like a lot of fine craftsmen use fine art and fine artists say craft and it, it, the, all of these terms, art, fine art, craft, et cetera, they're all too interchangeable at this point. And, and so it's really hard to sort of find the really good quality absolutely and i think that's where exhibitions come into place i mean we're, we're on a world hold right now with exhibitions but really for an artist if they can get in and they've made it with a really good secure exhibition i mean that starts there well and that goes to that arbiter of good taste because mm-hmm. like there would be a gallerist who would say this person's worthy of exhibiting or a curator selection process something some sort of criteria that sort of you know just i mean it sounds really horrible it sounds kind of elitist when i'm saying it out loud no, but i mean I but it's basically what i'm talking mm-hmm. about like there needs to be some quality control like so mm-hmm. on whatever that means it doesn't mean it doesn't literally mean quality but like some quality control just to to help the viewer help the general collector buyer you know understand that like this is more worthy than everything else right because it is daunting for someone who's just starting to collect for example there's just so much out there social media media in general has has made it overwhelming for someone who's just initially trying to buy their first work of art but i really think it's important to just focus where you are locally what are the local artists doing i mean who who would have thought in the 1970s 1980s how big of a name cindy sherman would have come out to be in photography and she was based right here in buffalo new york so sometimes it's just looking at what what is right there we can't travel right now so that's why i'm really grounded in who the artists are right here in western new york 
on the flip side of that, you mentioned art fairs before. How important do you feel like art fairs are for you as a collector? I mean, if you can access them, that's great. I mean, when I was living in Toronto, that was easy. When I was living in Abu Dhabi for five years, you know, going to Dubai, that was easy. Um, so, But art fairs aren't going to generally be for the emerging artist. The emerging artist is not going to show up at those art fairs, unfortunately. They just, they don't have the caliber, they don't have the dime to have a gallery like Waterhouse and Dodd represent them. Waterhouse and Dodd takes quite a big percentage. So, I mean, you, like if you're a gifted artist or you somehow can get in with those art fairs, that, that's a whole different area. But yeah, I don't know if that answered your question at all. Ish, it's good enough. Yeah, I mean, basically if you can get to them, great, but like that's not probably where you're gonna start collecting. Cause right. I mean, art fairs are really fabulous in many ways and they fit, they they answer a certain itch for a certain part of society. But right. I mean, you have those high-end artists at the art fairs. I mean, we we were in Dubai. I think you were at a few too. And Jeff Koons gave a lecture. And I, I mean, I was less blown away by him even more after that lecture than when I hadn't known him at all. I mean, so art fairs don't necessarily, they're not the final crunch. Not for me anyways. Um, it, it might introduce you to an artist, but an artist is paying a considerable fee to be at these art fairs. Indeed, yeah. Okay, you also mentioned like certificates of authenticities and provenance and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. As a practice, as a young or emerging artist now, like I just recently, like in the past two or three years, have gotten into the obsession of certificate of authenticities with all the criteria and then doing like little hologram stickers with matching mm -hmm. numbers on the on right. the, the certificate and then on the back of the image like mm -hmm. i mean really getting into all of this stuff to really give the buyer as much confidence in the quality of the work and the the, the you know all this kind of stuff how important is that kind of stuff as a collector that, that's yeah that's that's huge to me and i don't know if it's because i have this archival background and i'm meticulous when it comes to organization Oh no, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but to have that, it's just, it's the full package for me because emerging artists are not going to have the provenance records. They're not going to have a paper trail whatsoever. They're a new artist. The work probably hasn't been anywhere. But it's their job to start that paper trail by creating this certificate of authenticity that then begins the paper trail. I think I gave you the idea of the hologram. I, I was like, do, do you have anything to show that it came from you? <laughs> I, I had the stickers, but they were I, I had left them in the United States. And so I had to buy more stickers because you were pushing me to do that. So yes, mm -hmm. but I, I did start to do it like 10 years ago, but then it's sort of just, I just didn't keep up with it. And that, I mean, that's one of the things is like, as an artist, we have to, we have to maintain sort of our inventory and our, our, our certificates of authenticities and our hologram stickers and all this kind of stuff. Like it's, it is part of the job. Right. If you work with a dealer, that's the first thing they're going to ask you for an artist. They're going, they're going to want all of that on letterhead, um, all, all of that. And that, that's what, you know, as an artist, you pay for probably to have a dealer represent you is to have that security feature when a buyer is going to spend probably more than a few thousand dollars, five thousand, they're going to want that paper, that paperwork. It just it feels better for them as a buyer. Oh, I totally understand. Yeah. All right. Any last topics that you want to touch on? I, I did want to stress the importance of 
helping the art world. I mean, in the last four years, we saw a lot of endowments and a lot of grants being taken away with the political administration. So it's so important to support the artists with what they're trying to do. They didn't have a lot of funding in the past few years. So I, I think it's really important to try to support them as best as one can, even if it's just buying their drawings initially. All right. Any advice for anybody? So like it could be young collectors, this kind of stuff, like any advice of how to even enter into the sort of the collecting, like, you know, how to start basically. Understand the process of buying art, you know, whether it's a sale by a living artist or someone that's been collected in the past. So really research before you buy, wait before you buy a piece of art, you know, are you thinking about it? Are you just anxious to fill a space? That goes back to our other topic about filling a space above a sofa. Wait for that piece that truly moves you. Perhaps establish a budget. What is your budget? We all have a budget. So that's definitely a factor in costs. And really immerse yourself in the art. Where do you see it later on when you're purchasing the artwork? Is this a long-term and long investment? Or do you intend to flip the work? something that I have never done yet. My husband jokes with me. Are you ever going to sell that one? So I think I, you know, like that so far I've never sold any. I just, I can't part with them. They become part of our family. You're a collector. You're not a salesperson. Yes, I understand. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about a budget. So is this something you like, do you, for you, do you create a budget for yourself? Do you, or did you already like, you said like, okay, this is how much we have to budget for. And like, is it a yearly budget? So the reason why I'm asking is like, so do you say I want to buy, let's say one painting or one piece of art a month uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as a kind of a budget? Or is it I have X amount of money annually and then it's, you either you can buy one really expensive piece or a dozen less expensive pieces? Like how do you, from your end, think through your budget for buying art? So if, if we spent like 5,000 one year or 10,000 on one year, I think the following year would be in drawings or prints, like in the hundreds. So it, it won't be in the thousands the following year. I mean, we need to balance out. So we don't really have a particular rhyme or reason, but there's definitely a budget or else I probably would never stop. <laughs> <laughs> you, your house would just be filled with bo books just and art. selling things that I don't need right now. Do we need these groceries or do we need that painting? <laughs> mm. That is a tough debate. I mean, you could get cheaper groceries, but you may never be able to buy that piece of art again. Right. It's all, it's all, it's, I mean, everyone's different completely. So yeah, if we made a large investment in one year, the next year might not be as, but that's just us. I mean, I'm just talking to you. <laughs> it's fine. All right. Anything else? Any last thing you want to mention? Talk about? No, just the importance of supporting artists. I mean, if you can go out for dinner and spend three or four hundred dollars on a dinner, you definitely have three or four hundred dollars on a drawing that is long lasting, far more long lasting than that dinner. We're we're into the point of our lives now that for 20 year anniversary, you know, what would you like? Or 10 year anniversary? I'd rather have a work of art than 
a, a piece of jewelry or something. I, I'm not one to buy expensive shoes or expensive purses anymore. I'd rather have a good quality work of art. So we have that line, you know, we can't do both. For me, it's the art. For sure. We're 100% without a doubt. It's, it's the art. Or a book. Yeah, the book. When you can't get the art. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt.